at 60 hours a week, 80 something percent of residents made less than an hourly living wage and 90 something percent of interns made less than an hourly living wage. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in D.C. And I'm Willie Bidot, a board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian in California. Our guest today is Sam Morello. Sam is a board-certified large animal surgeon, a speaker, and a researcher on veterinary compensation, among other subjects. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to be here. So, Sam, we're going to discuss your most recent publication. But first, how do you become interested in demographics and salaries within the veterinary profession? Yeah, that's a great question. So I spent 11 years in academia. And during that time, as one does, you end up accruing a lot of mentees. A lot of students come to your office and sort of ask you career advice. And, you know, as a large animal surgeon, I was giving a lot of advice to some young students who were interested in going into equine practice and large animal surgery. And as I looked around, you know, my area of the profession, I started to see that there were, you know, a lot of women in that corner of the veterinary profession that were not married, that didn't have children. And those were topics that a lot of my students had questions about, you know, for their own lives. And as I started to try to get into those discussions with them, because unlike when I was in veterinary school, you know, these students would come into my office and actually feel really comfortable and want to have those conversations and talk about those things for themselves. And I realized that I didn't want to give them advice that was just sort of off the cuff, right? I wanted to give them advice that was evidence based. And so I started to do research in that realm. And I realized that once I was doing research that was about not just gender, but sort of generational trends in how people were living their careers. And again, not just for women, but younger men as well. And it ended up not just being in surgery, but in other areas of practice. It translates directly into income, into salaries. And not just for the reasons that people start to sort of jump towards, which is the element of bias. It's because there are a lot of things that affect income that have nothing to do with bias. It's about the personal choices we make in our careers because we want to make them. And also because sometimes we have to make them. It's sort of the bottlenecks and the barriers. It's the way that our career goals or our personal life goals or requirements intersect so deeply with our professional life. And, you know, there's a lot of gray in there, right? How all those things intersect. And so it just became a really large topic of investigation, how gender and generational differences intersect with salary and compensation in the veterinary industry. And it's become a really, really interesting area of research and speaking for me because it relates directly to professional sustainability, which is a huge topic in our profession today. Yeah, I love that. And I I love that it came originally from conversations you were having with vet students and with veterinarians who were still in training. And so you just had a big study posted in, I say posted, but I mean published, in JAVMA. And the title of that study is 
comparison of resident and intern salaries with the current living wage as a quantitative estimate of financial strain among postgraduate veterinary trainees. So that's a long title. So do you have a nickname for the study, first of all? And what was the study about? Yeah, so I think financial strain among postgraduate trainees is the easiest way to say it or when people know what the phrase house officers mean. So financial strain among house officers, because really we're trying to get at the idea that financial strain is real among this group. And the study was about that. So understanding the role that finances can play in affecting sort of the mental health, the physical health of those individuals at that period of time, and also on a greater scale, how we understand the compensation relative to the location that somebody is in. So, you know, that's where that concept of uh, living wage, you can go do a training program in Manhattan, New York, but you could also go do a training program in Manhattan, Kansas. And the living wage is going to be different in those two locations. And so finding a way to really understand compensation relative to where a person is undergoing those training programs was a really important part of it. And understanding that financial strain relative to that living wage in those areas was important. And then again, on that 10,000 foot perspective, trying to discuss what the burden, I guess, of that financial strain or the effect of that financial strain was on those individuals' well-being and also the effect or role that that could play on career decision-making, career choices, diversity, opportunities, the bottlenecks it might play on somebody being able to say, well, can I really even make the choice to pursue internship or residency training or is that not an opportunity that I can afford myself at this point in my life are really some of the things we wanted to get out. Because again, that larger concept of how do we make career decisions here in veterinary medicine and what are the factors that contribute to that and finances being a huge one is really important to this larger conversation on professional sustainability. Thank you for that. And that is a great segue for my next question, which is, uh, what are interns and residents being paid a living wage? <laughs> and with, with your example of either Manhattan, New York, or Manhattan, Kansas, do, do you see any trends and how are these salaries being determined? Yeah. So two questions in there and both great questions. So I'll start with the first part, which is, are interns and residents being paid a living wage? And the answer is not necessarily. It depends on where you are. So we used a term called income surplus, and I actually think we invented that term. But it was basically that, that mathematical equation between what the salary in a given program was versus what the living wage in the location of that program was. So it was a simple subtraction between those two values. And if the sum was negative, that means that person is not getting paid a living wage. So the, the costs of living in a certain location was higher. And I want to point out that the, a living wage, as it's described, we used the MIT living wage calculator, which is a really sort of advanced tool that they've put together, which looks at you know, what is the very, very basic cost of living in an area. And it's that fine line between where you need to live on some sort of federal assistance program like food stamps 
or housing subsidies versus you're just above that line. So it's a really minimum basic income for living. And that's what the living wage defines. And so in some locations, the salaries were above the living wage. And in some locations, it wasn't. And about 15% of residency programs were actually below the living wage. And about 17% of internship programs were below the living wage. And that was before taxes were taken out. So it was actually a higher proportion of both that were below the living wage in an after-tax model. And so, you know, the answer is no, not everybody is above the living wage. And the amount of money above the living wage that even the ones who were above the living wage wasn't very much. It was a couple thousand dollars. And so that's the amount of money you have to, say, put towards your student loans or towards your savings or towards your pet care or going out to dinner or a vacation or visiting your family. You know, some of the things that contribute to your overall mental health and well-being. Or let's say you have an unforeseen medical expense or your car blows out a tire or something like that, right? So these are the everyday things that I think you and I take for granted, right? Because we're in a more comfortable living situation, but not everybody can. And so then the next question is, you know, how are those salaries determined? And I'm not sure that we really know. I think that salaries were set for interns and residents a long time ago, long before you and I, I think, finished veterinary school. I graduated in 2006. And when I finished my residency, which was well over a decade ago now, I was getting paid, I think, around uh, $29,000. And the average salary today, uh, or when we did this study this past year for a resident out of academia was about $34,000. So that has not gone up very much in over a decade which means they're certainly not taking into account things like inflation, things like the rising costs of living wage. And so it's not clear how those salaries are being set. You know, everywhere else in the economy, salaries are set based on revenue being generated. And it's not clear what amount of revenue is based off of the production of interns and residents. They certainly do contribute to on some level to the production being generated in a hospital. You know, education is expensive on some level. So, you know, it costs something to be educated, but they're also adding to the amount of cases and to the volume of cases that can go through a hospital. And I I don't think we really know the number or the answer to that question. How much are they adding to the revenue in a hospital or how much are they slowing it down? So the answer, Willie, is I don't know. I don't know how they're being set, and I don't know how they're being reset every year. No, I appreciate your answer because looking at your article, you talk about uh, laboratory animal residencies, and that's what I did, and they're based on an NIH pay scale. So at least for me, my salary was adjusted, and I knew that I was going to get a raise every year and whatnot. So, of course, I really appreciated that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Human medical residents, laboratory animal residents, because you're subsidized by the NIH, and most other actually postgraduate science trainees, so people that are doing PhDs or postdocs, all those programs are subsidized mostly by federal dollars. Human medical residents, they're subsidized by Medicare and Medicaid and even the VA hospitals. Veterinary residents and and interns are some of the only postgraduate science trainees that aren't subsidized by a program. 
and they're the lowest paid of all of that group. Yet they contribute directly to the economy, right? They help produce a whole lot of income for the hospitals that they work in. So it's a really interesting space that they fill and contribute to, yet there's no real, you know, economic sort of model for what they should get paid or why or where it's coming from. And there's certainly so, no subsidies applied to that educational model either. So, Yeah, it's really notable. A couple of things that you said, one being that the salaries haven't really increased that much over the past decade, even as tuition costs have increased dramatically over the past decade. And so that's really interesting. And of course, therefore, student debt load has increased significantly. And then the other thing is just the fact that no one seems to have looked at how much those interns and residents are producing for the hospital. That would be a really interesting study to do and probably not an easy one to do either. No, no, not at all. I mean, trying to tease out the production of a service from the board certified people from the super critical supporting you know, residents, interns, and also technicians. It's a muddy, because I think actually some of the same issues that we're talking about here with the house officers are some of the same issues we could be talking about with the technical staff, right? Underpaid, but extraordinarily impactful, valuable labor force. It's hard to extract who creates what value in that revenue generated, but I think it's an important part of that overall conversation. So. Tough study, but probably something somebody needs to start looking at somewhere soon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with salaries, is there any correlation with vets who are in training and cost of living? So if you live in a lower cost of living area, are you more likely to be paid a living wage versus if you're in a higher cost of living area? Yeah, that's a great question. So we tried to look at that. We tried to do a regression analysis where we looked at what the salaries were correlated to the living wage. And statistically, there was a low to moderate correlation, um, low for the residency training and moderate for internship training. But I think it was a casual relationship in that salaries were very low. They were clustered in the 30s and living wages are also very low. You can survive on wages that are in the 30s. But again, that's a very, very subsistence method of living. And so I think it just happened to be that all those numbers were clustered around the same general range. And so whatever statistical relationship was there just happened to be because they were in that same sort of number range and not because people had said, hmm, you know, like, where do I live? Let me look up the living wage and let me make sure that I set my salary appropriate to, you know, where it is that I'm living. I don't think it was done purposefully. I think it just happened to be that way. Whereas I think the intention should be to, for a program to say, you know, where am I? What is the cost of living here? Is it going up annually? And what quality of life should my veterinary trained, postgraduate trainee be living with the amount of time and energy and labor that they're putting in and start to be a little bit thoughtful about the quality of life that they should expect to have and amount of money they should be expect to um, be able to save and contribute to their own, you know, sort of personal lives as a result of the effort that they're going to put in as well as the education they're going to receive. 
Yeah, and talking about the effort that the residents or interns are, are putting in, you know, how well are they being paid in terms of how many hours per week they're working? Yeah, so great question. I mean, I, I try to think of this whole study as a discussion on the value, time, education, and labor that they're putting in. And so interns and residents are exempt from sort of that hourly wage requirement by what's called the Fair Labor and Standards Act, which means that when you're in a training program, nobody can say, you know, you only work 40 hours a week, and then after that, you should be paid overtime, which means they can be paid their set salary, and they can work 20 hours a week, or they can work 100 hours a week, and it doesn't matter. But we still looked at exactly what you're asking, you know, about how much are they making per hour. And we were able to do that in part because the AAVMC recently did the House Officer Wellbeing Study, which teased out some of that data, which was about how many hours a week on average do interns and residents work. And that weekly number ended up being about 60 hours per week. It was a little bit higher for interns. It was about 66 hours per week for interns on average, with the standard deviation of about 10. So on average, you know, the hourly wage for house officers for residents was somewhere around 12 overall, and it was lower in academia. It was about $10 per hour at a 60-hour work week for, for residents in academia and a little bit higher in private practice. And for interns, it was lower. It was about, on average, about $8 per hour for interns in academia and, and higher in private practice. On average, interns and residents get paid more in private practice and, and less in academia, which is why those numbers are different. And so depending on where you live, those numbers are certainly lower than the living wage in most locations. So it was about 80-something percent of programs were lower than the hourly living wage, which is all defined in the MIT tool that we used. So at 60 hours a week, 80-something percent of residents made less than an hourly living wage, and 90-something percent of interns made less than an hourly living wage. And I think it was 17% of house officers actually made less than an hourly minimum wage when they worked 60 hours per week. And about 14% of interns made less than an hourly minimum wage when they worked 60 hours per week. And those numbers clearly went up when they were working more than 60 hours per week, which very often they do. So that gives you some idea, again, of the value of the time, education, and labor of the average house officer. Yeah, those are some crazy percentages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so it, it's one of those things where it's surprising, but it's sadly not surprising that that's the case, that you could be working as hard as interns and residents do, and you could actually be making what is, depending on where you live, it might actually be less than the minimum wage even. Less than going to work at Starbucks, less than going to work somewhere else. Which again, I mean, is one of the other issues we see with some of the technicians. And so it's, it's a larger topic of discussion here in, the, here in the veterinary profession, valuing people's time. Yes. And so when we're thinking about contracts and when we're thinking about job offers, and we always want to look at the salary, but then we always want to look at other factors. What are some other financial barriers that vets who are in training programs face? Yeah. Another great question. 
You know, we didn't take it directly into account in our study, mostly because we used VIRMP data to do the financial data. And not every VIRMP program listing outlines every financial benefit of the program. That being said, I learned a lot about it. And even since the study has come out, I've had a lot of conversations. I've collated more data. And so everybody offers healthcare and healthcare is good. And actually, when you're in like a big university, they're usually what's called a PPO, a preferred provider organization. And so the healthcare benefits tend to be phenomenal. And, you know, with the emergence of some of the bigger corporate practices, healthcare has been pretty good and better in some of those, you know, bigger collective organizations. But in most universities, you don't actually have access as a house officer to things like 401ks, 403bs, some of the other matching programs for retirement. In a lot of those organizations, you have to be working for somewhere around five years to be vested in those programs. You can't take part in things like pensions. But in a lot of the corporate practices, they're already offering 401ks and those sorts of things to some of their house officers, even when they're only there for a couple of years. And so I'm not sure that those are directly discussed or even actually considered by a lot of people applying to those programs, but those are huge benefits. We had a very good friend of mine, Dr. Brent Mayab. He's the global chief medical officer at Royal Canaan. He's really thoughtful and invested in sort of the personal finance struggles of young veterinarians. And we talked a lot about this study when it came out. And he did some really nice sort of back in the napkin calculations on what that looks like when you have retirement savings during those early years of training, those those four years, hypothetically at least, of, of intern and resident training versus when you don't. And even with some really conservative saving calculations, say $200 a month during those four years at like an 8% compounding rate, it can be a difference of something like $200,000 of interest by the time you retire at age 65. And that's a huge deal. I mean, that's a, that's a huge difference for an individual. And so I think taking that long view on some of those small nuances is really important, which comes down to education, right? It comes down to just talking about it and discussing it for students, for interns, and for people making some of those decisions. I think that there are some other benefits, things like paid time off, even maternity leave for residents who are maternity and paternity, so family leave for residents that are undergoing some changes in their, in their personal life and their family structure during those times. And a, a lot of those more competitive benefits tend to be popping up in some of the private practices at this point in time rather than academia. Yeah, definitely benefits is something that you have to take under account when accepting any of these positions or other sorts of compensation, not just a salary. So the Merck uh, well-being studies uh, have shown a link between financial stress and lower well-being scores. So what are your thoughts on this in the context of your study? Yeah, so one of the really interesting findings in the Merck well-being study was exactly that. It was that people who, so lower well-being stores with financial stress and also that people who felt that their time was undervalued 
specifically with respect to financial compensation, had lower well-being. Which gets back to, I think, the point we just made with that question you asked, really, about sort of that hourly compensation. That has a lot to do with sort of culture and climate, right? Do you feel valued in your workplace? Do you feel like your employers value what you're bringing to the table? And I do think that that probably differs when you are an employee versus when you're a resident. But I don't think that that's entirely lost on residents, right? I don't think that's entirely lost on a trainee workforce. And so I think that it highlights an important part of this conversation because right now there's a workforce crisis in general, right? And the specialty workforce is a really important part of that. Everybody needs a specialist right now. Everybody's looking for a surgeon and an oncologist and a neurologist and an internist. And the recruitment and retention part of hiring residents, even, is really important. It's not just finding a good resident, it's finding a resident who might want to stay where they get trained, especially if they're, you know, a really good resident. And so creating an environment where they're really happy in their training process, which may be directly related to how they feel valued for their time, is, I think, an important part of how we're creating and structuring internship and residency programs. If you feel valued during that training experience, again, part of that being demonstrated by how you're compensated, then that individual may be more motivated to stay on and stay working there afterwards. And that should be a motivation to an employer to compensate them in a way that might inspire them to stay on. It contributes to their happiness, their lack of burnout, or mitigating a potential burnout and addressing that ultimate specialty gap. Yeah, so doing things to help them feel valued, including better pay, but of course, also the way that they're treated and the expectations that that are placed on them. And so you mean they should do more than just perhaps have you sign an agreement that says you have to work for them for two or three years after your program? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not all just about money, right? It's about the benefits. It's about maybe not having a non-compete. It's about not, yeah, locking somebody into a long contract. It's about the environment. Money certainly isn't anything. So it's about the overall climate and quality of the education. So we can never distill these things down to one specific thing. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think the non-compete conversation is a tangent to this, but I do think is, is part of that because You know, the non-competes actually are one of the things that can limit moonlighting, which I also don't think is the answer to some of the wage problems for the house officers, but is one of the discussion points when interns and residents don't make enough money and they can be limited in their ability to moonlight because of some of the non-competes. And so, yeah, it's a much more sort of nuanced conversation, but a very important one. Mm Mm-hmm. So Willie and I are both admins for the Debt-Free Vets Facebook group, and sometimes we'll have vet students who come on the group and post about whether they should pursue an internship versus go into private practice right after graduation. And we also have people post saying that they're weighing a job offer that has higher income and less mentorship right out of school versus a job that has lower income and more mentorship. And so what advice would you have for them, given your research and given your experience as well? 
Well, that's, I think, the perfect question right after what I just said, which is that none of these things are black and white, right? It shouldn't just be about money, nor should it just be about mentorship, because nothing exists in a bubble. I think it's an integrated choice. I think the thing to understand is that everybody's going to have their own sets of sort of barriers and bottlenecks and also goals. And if you are able, and sometimes people are not able, right, because they're going to be constrained by whatever their own life stressors are, whether that is debt or something else in their personal life, family or other constraints or goals, you know, wanting to do a residency, not feeling confident enough to go out and to practice without that residency or just wanting that experience. One year is one year. And sometimes we look at what's right in front of our nose and make a decision about what's immediately in front of us. And I encourage people to take the long view because one year really is only one year. And an internship can be a really, really wonderful experience. And if you're going to do an internship, I encourage you to do your due diligence and make sure it really is a high quality internship, which unfortunately not every single one is. And I do think that it's a wonderful enough educational experience that given the right experience, it shouldn't necessarily be a negative to take some financial hit for a year for the experience of exposure to various specialties, to an extraordinarily high level of care, to gaining extra confidence and exposure and hands-on experience in that setting. And honestly, to the relationships that you can build in that high pressure experience that you aren't necessarily going to get. I mean, I had an extraordinarily stressful internship that I couldn't wait to be done with and I wouldn't trade it for anything else because you know, there's something just really unique about that. And it was one year. And I think we spent the entire year saying this is only one year, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I loved it. And what I really want to see is that we don't create a bottleneck to internships because of finances. I want for us in this profession to make sure that internships can be an opportunity to everybody regardless of the fact that it may not be the same salary as some of the other opportunities out there, but that it's an educational experience that anybody can have the opportunity to access, even though it might not be the same salary they might get elsewhere, but it can still be comfortable. It can still be something anybody can do that isn't going to be prohibitive to their life and that it can contribute to more things in their future because it's going to add that education. And I'm not sure that we have that right now, the way that we are currently paying people. And that is creating a set of choices that is pushing people to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. So I will take the sort of maybe silver standard mentorship approach with a much higher salary, which may not provide the same level of education, but is going to be a, a better choice for them for other reasons. So I think that was a more vague answer than you were looking for, but I don't think it's black and white. You know, I think, I think people have to decide what their primary goal is um, and then make that choice for themselves. Mm hmm. I agree. Yeah. And I, I think that was an appropriately vague answer to give, actually. And, and Willie and I both did internships and we were, we were sitting here nodding as you were talking about it because I, I'm in the same boat where I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. And the other thing that I can say 
is that I am 100% sure I would not be an emergency vet today if I had not done an internship because I wouldn't have been in a position where I had either the knowledge or the confidence not having been exposed to emergency very much prior to my internship. I just wouldn't have had the confidence to go into that position. And of course, ER veterinarians in general also happen to make more money than the average GP does. And so in that way, it was a good investment for me. It was a great investment to do an internship, even though I didn't end up pursuing a residency. I was thinking about it at the time that I decided to do one, but didn't end up actually pursuing a residency. It was still really valuable from an experience perspective and then also from a career perspective because I found an area of the profession that I wouldn't have otherwise known that I liked. Yeah, I mean, I don't think every internship has to turn somebody into a resident. I think it just exposes you to more, gives you a better background and helps launch you into the next phase of your career. It's only one year, but it can be a great year. So I just, it shouldn't be a bottleneck. That's all. The the money shouldn't be a bottleneck. Yeah. And another question that I thought of as you were talking about internship programs is what do you think about some of the other types of training programs that have come up over the past few years. So there are a couple of ER companies. So Veterinary Emergency Group is running a six-month training program. There's another big hospital group that is also running a, it's either a six or 12-month training program. What do you think about those sort of focused training programs? Yeah, you know, I actually even meant to mention that during my response. Veg, I think Blue Pearl, VCA have all started doing those things. I'm not sure if some of the other big companies have, but I think those are great. I mean, I think that the goal should be education. And I think that what some of the companies like Veg have done is eliminate that financial barrier to additional education, which again, I think should be the goal. It's providing students, young veterinarians, with an opportunity to access additional education to give them a career path. I think the majority of those programs are focused on emergency care or urgent care. So it's education in a fairly, I mean, not that emergency is in any way a narrow realm, it's actually arguably the broadest realm, right? But it's on a specific path. So I think that that's great. I think that you know, you could compare that to the average internship, which is going to give you experience in emergency and maybe surgery and maybe oncology and the various specialties, which is a more sort of varied education. But I think the trend for veterinary medicine to go down the path of human medicine, where we can create more opportunities to sort of specialize or subspecialize or generalize even in different directions and have different career paths and different opportunities in general is excellent. And to create additional postgraduate educational opportunities that are well-funded, any opportunity to do that is excellent. And I 100% support it. And I think that those big practice groups that have put their educational resources and financial resources behind it, not only have done something great for young veterinarians, they're helping to solve some of the workforce crisis in doing it. So I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I love it. I love it that everything is kind of evolving. And, and with that said, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but 
We usually focus on salaries and there's definitely other components to compensation, meaning benefits. And you mentioned the differences between academia and private practice. But, you know, one of my concerns is also that these big companies, even academia that already have established benefits, they modify them for their interns and residents. So do you see any anything, any movement on changing these benefits? Yeah, I mean, the problem with academia, unfortunately, is that when you look at a veterinary school and you want to have these conversations with veterinary schools, the structure takes place at a much higher level than the veterinary school, which I, well, you probably know very well, having some involvement in, in, in a veterinary school. And so I think ultimately the schools are going to have to figure that out. I do think that veterinary schools are always going to carry a lot of weight, right? They're always going to be competitive as far as attracting good residents. They run wonderful training programs. They carry a lot of weight and they produce really good doctors. So I do think that as the private practice training programs grow, it is something that the academic programs are going to have to catch up with in some way. And I don't really know the mechanics of that, but they're going to have to evolve in the way that private entities have. And that, I think, is going to be in more way than one. Like I said earlier, we showed that the private practice entities, internships and residencies already, you know, paid at a higher scale than academia currently does. You know, they have more efficient business models, so they, they can. So there one day, I think, will be some version of a reckoning. And I don't know when that's going to be and I don't know how it's going to be. But I, I do personally believe that academia will have to catch up to something because it will contribute to the culture of how those interns and residents practice and feel. And that, I think, also feeds down into what students see. And students will, will see it. And so it will translate eventually. That is it. Great response. And I have worked at three different vet schools, so I appreciate that response. Okay, so talking about vet schools and, you know, us being role models for these uh, residents and interns. And previously you talked about financial restraints, but how does that relate to diversity? And, you know, going back to my experience and my wife's experience, my wife is also a veterinarian. We're both from Puerto Rico, and we talk a lot about student debt, and unfortunately, there was no other option for us. We had to move from Puerto Rico, in our case, to Alabama to go to vet school, so we incurred quite a bit of student debt. So, you know, how does that relate to diversity overall and us being role models? So, you know, in addition to the study that you and I are talking about today, I, I've done a couple other studies of some of the veterinary specialists, specifically surgeons and internists and cardiologists and neurologists and the ACVIM, actually. And what we showed there was that it was greater than 91 or 92 percent of specialists were white. So an extraordinarily low percentage of specialists were non-white. And the majority of people, as you well know, in veterinary schools that are teaching veterinarians or young students to be veterinarians are specialists, right? That's, that's who we mostly employ. And in order to be a specialist, you have to do an internship and residency. So bear with me, I'll get there eventually. 
So there clearly is some sort of bottleneck. You know, over 20-something percent, actually close to 30 percent of our veterinary school classes, thanks to the efforts of people like Lisa Greenhill and the AABMC, are now of the underrepresented minority groups. But we're not translating that very well into you know, the population that are teaching us in the veterinary schools. And so what are some of those bottlenecks? And clearly there are going to be many, right? Things like bias, things like socioeconomic factors, selection, career choices, role modeling. I mean, you could go on and on. But finances tend to play a role in everything in, in the world, right? And you just already talked about it. You talked about taking on student debt. And so finances are going to be a big part of the way people make career decisions in their lives. And so there's already actually quite good data. And Lisa Greenhill was one of the people that put this out. They did a focus on diversity at the AAVMC, I think, last year. It was to show that Black, Indigenous, and people of color that matriculated into veterinary schools already came in with a higher proportion of those individuals carrying debt and carrying larger amounts of debt compared to white students, which means that those are probably individuals that are going to have a lower threshold for being able to pursue internships and residencies because that stress of taking on, you know, those very, very low incomes for long periods of time, internship and residency, and possibly multiple internships to be able to get to that residency, you know, that threshold's going to be lower. And that may be one of the reasons that we see, you know, smaller proportions of diplomates being represented by that non-white population of veterinarians. And so in order to increase representation of that diverse veterinary professional workforce in our schools, we need to try to remove some of the barriers that might be in place structurally that can limit diversity. And one of those is financial. And it's diversity in a lot of different ways, too. It's certainly racial and ethnic. And right now, that's probably the most important in veterinary medicine, because that's where our biggest problem is. But it also relates to other things like gender diversity, like the opportunity for people to start families. You can't live on a salary of $30,000 a year and be able to send a small child to daycare. Certainly not if both of you are veterinarians, like you just said you and your wife are. If both of you were interns or residents, how would you support a family of three when both of you had salaries at that level? So, you know, it limits choices. And so, you know, I think it's a pretty clear barrier that requires some discussion in this overall very important conversation in veterinary medicine about diversity and how we can improve sort of the structure within the profession to, to improve representation. You know, talking about openness, you know, one of the things is, should we be talking about compensation? Should we be more open about talking about compensation? I mean, I don't know if it's international or if it's very American or if it's, we, we actually know, I think there's data that that women are even more closed off about talking about finances. And it's also been true that there isn't a great place in veterinary medicine where you can go and look up salaries. The AVMA has their salary calculator, which works fairly well if you're a small animal GP in private practice, but it doesn't work well if you do anything else, really. And it certainly, ha I don't think, works well in, in corporate practice. It doesn't work great for 
production-based revenue. So there's nothing like a great, you know, like a, a glass door or anything like that for veterinary medicine. And people, you know, honestly, people are weird about it. P nobody sits down over beers at a table with five of their friends and is like, what are you making? What did you generate last year? Like, what's your, you know, what's your base salary? What's your, what's your production? And because somehow it's extraordinarily personal, but it's not. And there's this taboo about it. But transparency is so important because the sharing of knowledge helps push things forward. It would help us improve our own salaries. It would help us improve the salaries across the profession. Harvard Business School runs this great case where they demonstrate how they narrowed the starting salary gap between male and female MBA graduates when they provided transparent salary data to women who were negotiating for their starting salaries. The starting salaries of women who had transparent salary data to negotiate with were equivalent to the starting salaries of men versus when they didn't have any transparent data to use for anchoring, their salaries were lower. So you know, it, it creates a more competitive job market. It narrows gender-based income gaps. I don't see any negative. Somebody give me evidence of something bad that happened other than maybe somebody had their feelings hurt. But I think we need to get more comfortable talking about it. And I think we need to have better resources available for it. Yeah, agreed. And something that is a new problem that we're seeing also on the Debt-Free Vets group is I'm seeing posts about people saying, gosh, you know, I just got my new contract for this year. And these are established veterinarians. And they're saying that they're aware that there are new grads who are making more money than them. And sometimes those new grads got a little sign-on bonus. And sometimes they got a huge sign-on bonus. And they're saying, well, should I be arguing to try to get a retention bonus because I've been out for five years or however many years? And there are some things that are coming up now that just weren't out there a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of how things worked in academia, too. You kind of get your salary and then somebody new gets hired, yeah, five years after you at a higher salary. And I mean, but that is why I think transparency is important, because then you can advocate for your own worth and you can go back in and say, yeah, I've been out for five years and now I need this. And if you'd like to retain me, this is what it should be. And truly, the best employers shouldn't be waiting for somebody to come in to ask for those things. They should be doing those internal reviews and saying, you know, Meredith has been here for five years and I haven't given her a raise in two or three and I just hired Willie and I'm going to give Meredith a, a salary raise that is equivalent to what Willie is getting or higher because she's more experienced. Yeah, it's something that's being overlooked out there. So with all the information we have now about compensation and also student debt burden, what's next? I think there are two big things. I think one big thing is to improve how we are educating students because students, I think, are told a ton about the fact that they have debt and then they come out just thinking, okay, now I have to make money without really taking the nuanced approach that we've been talking a little bit about, really understanding the nuances of their benefits and making those sort of longer term decisions, right? Not looking just at the tip of their nose about what's the thing that I should do that's right in front of me for the one year, but 
you know, what's the long game here? Gaming out their decisions over three or five years versus, you know, what's the immediate choice that I'm making? I think the other thing to look at is, you know, just generally, what are some of our compensation systems? They're a little bit all over the map right now. You can make money in a whole variety of different ways. And sometimes it doesn't completely make sense, right? Is it even a sustainable model, what we're doing right now? Especially with the sort of unbalanced labor shortage that we're in, some of the compensation strategies are getting a little bit out of control, which is in some ways great. You know, I'm really glad veterinarians are getting paid, but is it contributing to the healthiest work environments where people are, you know, trying to run towards a bigger paycheck or X, Y, or Z, it's not necessarily always contributing to the healthiest work environments. And so human medicine is going towards things like value-based care, compassionate care models that can improve patient outcomes, also eliminate some of the burnout that we're seeing, because I do think some of our revenue-based systems contribute back to some of the burnout that we see. Where you do a lot more, you make a lot more, and, and that's not necessarily going to be the most sustainable model in the long run. So it's also going to contribute to higher and higher costs for some of our uh, clients. And so I, I think a reckoning will come eventually. And that's a bigger question than I personally can answer with my degree in large animal surgery. So I, I think those are some of the big things. And I also think that as we transition into what is already a predominantly female workforce, and becomes an even more predominantly female workforce, and also a workforce that's characterized by a younger generation, which is not all women, certainly a younger generation of men, which truly have a very different value system than the quote-unquote boomers and the generation that's starting to retire right now. You know, there, there's a psychology component to economics that we don't really factor in when we look at uh, a strictly fee-for-service revenue-based system, which is mostly how we make money in veterinary medicine right now, right? You do something and somebody pays you for the thing that you did, regardless of the time or mental energy that sort of went into it. And I think that there's a lot of room for considering sort of the psychology of it and what it means to have a predominantly female workforce in a younger generation and what the sort of motivations of that group are and considering how that workforce wants to work, the decisions that they make, what's going to be the most sustainable among this younger and more female group. And I think that needs to be factored into the economics of the profession today to make it sustainable and also more productive. This is a little bit of a tangent, but when we did some of our specialist study, we showed that in private practice, where specialists make the majority of their revenue off of production, the gap between what men and women earned was between 25 and 29 percent, which is a huge, huge difference. And the majority of that is not going to come from bias because production is not a biased system. That's not somebody deciding that you know, Willie, you're going to get paid 25% more than Meredith because, you know, you're a man and she's a woman. It's because, you know, you're working differently for whatever variety of reasons. You're making different choices in your day. It wasn't even mostly based off of the number of hours people were working. That was actually a very, very minor component of it. It's based off of other things. But the interesting thing is that 
that 25% is a function of the revenue generated, right? So if you're a corporate practice owner, if you're a single practice owner, if you are private equity, that 25 or 29% matters, right? And so having a better understanding of why that income gap exists and figuring out ways to support it and maybe actually even monetize some of those choices to support them better, I think is really critically important today to support our workforce, reward them, value their time, and also economically support a workforce whose demographics are changing so that we do have the ability to continue to pay big starting salaries and signing bonuses and everything so that people can pay off those student loans and work four day work weeks and, and everything that we've been able to do today. That is a great point because, again, you know, salary is, is not the main thing. We're seeing a lot of people looking for flexibility and how are we going to be able to provide that? And we just have to think about it. Yeah, exactly. So, Sam, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, what is the best way our colleagues can connect with you? You can find me on LinkedIn or you can email me, which I think Meredith and you, Willie, will probably post somewhere. But my email is vetsam at gmail.com. We'll put it in the show notes. All right. Awesome. And so now we come to our last question. Sam, what is your best advice for our listeners? I think my best advice is, you know, I love thinking about career choices. And my best advice is don't look at the point of your nose. Look three years out, five years out, game it out, you know, write down on a piece of paper all the things that are important to you and how and why they're important to you and sort of rank it, right? How do those things fall in order of importance? And make those decisions as an integrated choice. You know, it, it's gray, it's not black and white. And then do it, live it, and don't be afraid to make a change. After you've done something for a couple years, don't be afraid to take a left. I mean, I'm sort of at a career point in my life where I'm actually taking a very hard left that I never predicted I would have. And it's really exciting that you can do that in veterinary medicine. So, you know, finance is a, is a big part of it, but it's not the be all end all of everything in how we work. So yeah, look at the gray, don't look at the black and white. All right. Agreed. And that is another trend that I'm seeing out there is that I'm seeing finances start to dictate some vets' career decisions. And that's concerning to me. And this has been a, a really important discussion. And I, I love that it's evidence-based. You know, we, we extrapolated on some things you know, based on the evidence, but I like that it, it's started with evidence-based and comes to a point of us talking about how we value ourselves in this profession. It's the most important thing. All right, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are excited to announce that we have selected dates for our virtual Veterinary Financial Summit, which will be October 22nd and 23rd. So please go ahead and mark your calendar for that. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.